found a podcast where you'll hear the truth and we will praise jesus name we stand for the bible and won't back down from it although it don't bring much fame some folks will like it some will try to deny it but god's word will always stand true it's been tried in the fire still Hello, friends. Welcome to the Pod King Podcast. I'm your co-host, Donald King. And I'm Donnie King, the host of the podcast. This is Monday, May the 9th, episode number 63, Double-Minded People Lack Wisdom, James chapter 1, 3 through 8. On this podcast, we studied the Bible according to how it was written in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, and how it was translated into English in the King James Version. In our last study, Brother Donnie and Brother Chris Lee tackled a couple of subjects that have left people confused for years. They taught us the biblical doctrines of sanctification and glorification. They brought out several points many people have overlooked. They used several scriptures to support their case. They spoke of the how, when, and the why of these things. We believe you were blessed by that episode. In today's episode, we're reminded that the trying of our faith works patience, that patience has a perfect work, that we are to ask God for wisdom, and that God gives to all men liberally. We see that we are to ask in faith without doubting, for the man that wavers will not receive anything from the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. We cover a lot of ground in this study, but we believe it will be a benefit to all who hear it. Now for the teaching of God's Word and the lesson for today, I'll turn it to the host of the Pod King Podcast, our pastor, Brother Donnie King. Well, thank you for listening in today. We're excited to be starting on our second episode of the book of James. We're going to try to cover some ground today. we got about five or six verses we're going to look at. Are you about ready to get going? I'm ready. All right. Well, we're going to begin. I'm going to start off by reading James chapter 1, verse 3. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Now, there's a number of things that I want to point out in this short verse. First, we should know this. Obviously, James says we should know it because he says knowing this. So he takes it that we either know it or that we need to know it. And I believe that we should all know that the trying of our faith, what it does for us. When our faith is tried, it brings about patience in our life. The Greek word for worketh is katergazome. Katergazome means to thoroughly do something. When our faith is tried, this thoroughly brings patience to us like nothing else can. James equates the trying of our faith with temptation. He is actually defining his terms here, and he's letting us know that this is the kind of temptation of which he speaks. There is some question as to what James is talking about when he says, knowing this. Is he pointing to what he's already said, or is he pointing to what he's about to say? I really believe that he's saying that if we know that the trying of our faith through temptations brings us patience, we can count them all joy. Peter spoke of the trial of our faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes. The reason for this is that it brings glory and honor unto Jesus Christ. The word trial in 1 Peter 1 and 7 is the same word that James uses here in verse 3. Let me read you 1 Peter 1 and 7. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Paul spoke about that we are to glory in tribulations in Romans 5 and 3. 
And then he tells us it's because tribulation works patience, and patience works experience, and experience works hope. Let me read you that in Romans 5 and 3 through 4. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. Jesus said that it's in our patience that we possess our souls in Luke 21 and 19. If the trying of our faith brings us patience, and it's in our patience that we possess our souls, our trials should be looked at in a very positive light. Most of us look at our trials in a very negative light. I'm afraid that we're looking at them in the wrong way. There's even more reason to count our temptations all joy. The word patience is a very powerful and even surprising word. It's the Greek hypomone. Hypomone isn't interpreted like we would usually interpret patience. This isn't speaking of someone obtaining the patience to be able to wait in line for 20 minutes longer than you would normally tolerate. This doesn't mean patience in the sense that you don't fly off the handle if it takes longer to get your food than you thought it should at the restaurant. This word means steadfastness. Because it's in the perfect tense, it means to remain and to keep remaining through whatever comes your way. We might could even call this stickability. It's the kind of faith that causes you to be steadfast through your many trials and temptations, and you remain steadfast. It describes a person who has faith that remains despite whatever you have to go through in life. This is why the writer told us in Hebrews 10 and 36 that we need patience that after we have done the will of the Lord, then we can obtain the promises. I want to tell you that this takes a lot of faith, my friend, and a person who's willing to remain with the Lord no matter what. And you got to blend that faith with patience. Let's go into verse four now in James one and four. But let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. James tells us to let patience have her perfect work. Patience has a way of perfecting us, of making us whole, of making us complete. James finishes this verse off by saying that patience makes us entire and wanting for nothing. One of the key things we need to notice here is that we must let patience work on us and work in us. If we allow patience to bring about her perfect work within us, it will perfect our faith while it's doing that. The implication is inherent in the Greek that if you'll let patience finish her good work, it will be that which perfects us. We will have no lack of anything. We will not be in need of anything. And that tells us that a steadfast faith supplies us with what we need in every area of our lives. When James says that we will be wanting nothing, this phrase is used two other times in this epistle, once in verse 5 and again in chapter 2, verse 15. It's interpreted as wanting here in verse 4. It's interpreted as lack in verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. In James 2 and 15, it's translated as destitute. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food. The Greek word for work here is ergos. And ergos can be translated as practical proof, effect, one who does good, and good work. That's what patience is trying to bring about in our life. James 1 and 5 is a very powerful verse, and I want to read this and comment quite in depth on this. James says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Now, James is addressing every person that would be reading this letter when he says, If any of you, if any of you lack wisdom, he's talking to whoever's reading this, whoever's hearing this. He declares that if they need wisdom, they just need to ask of God. 
This is what Solomon did and what he counseled us to do in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, and in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 2 through 7. James states that God gives to all men liberally. He says that God doesn't upbraid you for asking. Then he goes even farther by saying that God will give it to the one who asks. This gives us a little idea of how James sees the workings of God. For one, the person who is lacking wisdom must be willing to pray. The wisdom that's needed seems to stem from the need to possess wisdom and handling these trials or the trying of their faith. James is saying in order to go through what you're going through, you definitely need wisdom. And to get wisdom, you've got to ask of God. This is how they ask God for the thing they need, which in this case is wisdom. The person should believe that God will give liberally, that God will give freely what you're asking for. James speaks it as if it is a given that if you ask for wisdom, God's going to give it to you. Not only will he give it to you, he will give to you that wisdom that you need liberally, which means in great abundance. Now, you can look to Solomon for proof of this once again. There's many scholars who believe that James is very disconnected from Jesus and his teachings because James doesn't quote Jesus very often, they say, and he only mentions him a couple of times in his epistle. This speech that James is making right here about asking and receiving, I believe it comes straight from what Jesus taught us in Matthew 7 and 7. That says, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. That's Jesus himself teaching right here. Now, some people find it difficult to follow James here in the first five verses of chapter one because he has already brought in many different topics. He's talked about joy. He's talked about faith. He's talked about patience. He's talked about wisdom. He's got a lot of things on the table, but he's got something in mind that he's working towards. So to further strengthen his argument concerning God being willing to give wisdom to those who ask for it, I want to go to Proverbs 28 and 5 for a little bit of insight. Solomon says, evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. It's only those who seek the Lord who will gain understanding for all things. I think it's a wonderful way to think of the Lord as the God who gives. Did you notice that's what he said? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives, that giveth to all men liberally. So God is not just God. He's the God who gives. He's the God who gives to all men. He's the God who gives to all men liberally. He's the God who gives to all men liberally, and he upbraids not. Now, before anybody begins to think anything odd of this word liberal or liberally, it doesn't mean the opposite of conservatively. It is speaking in terms of how a person gives, not how a person lives. In Matthew 6 and 22, this same word liberally is interpreted as single. Let me read you that. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. That word could be interpreted as liberal. If thine eye be liberal, then your body's full of light. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 8 and 2. Here it's translated as liberality. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. In 2 Corinthians 9 and 11, it's translated as bountifulness. Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. And then once again in 2 Corinthians 9 and 13, We see it as liberal once again. Now, this word in its truest sense is defined as single-minded. All right, to be single-minded is fixing to be played against another phrase we're going to see in just a few verses. It's going to be played against the man who is called double-minded. 
This word, single-minded, liberal, it could be defined also as generous. God gives to all men generously. God gives to all men bountifully. It means that God gives without reserve. If God gives without reserve, that implies a free gift, and there's no limit to it. Doesn't that make you feel good to know that God not only cares for you, he will supply what you need, and not only what you need, he's got more than what you need. So the word that James uses here as giveth is better translated in all honesty as to grant, which also has connotations regarding giving to it. If you receive a grant, a lot of times that's through someone's giving. Let me read you Luke 19 and 23. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? Here we find it as gavest. How come you didn't grant my money to the bank? That's what this word is really saying right here. Now, there's some people who will grant you permission to do some things, but there's some people who will give you a grant to help you get things done. It's better to be given the grant than just granted permission because the grant will get more than just the one thing done that you're wanting to do. God is the one who's giving so liberally. He's granting unto you and giving unto you as a grant. God gives and he grants to you everything you need, but especially those things you have asked him for. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, it emphasizes giving as an attribute of God. Now think about that. In other words, we could read this, ask the giving God or ask God the giver. To me, that just gives us a great idea and a picture of God that he's wanting to give, that he desires to give, that you don't have to plead with him, Lord, please give me faith. Please give me wisdom. You ask him, Lord, I need more wisdom. Would you give me that? Lord, would you grant me more faith to be able to serve you better? The Greek word here for upbraideth, it's aniidzio. Okay, aniidzio means an insult. It means a reproach. It means to denounce, it means to reprimand, and it means to revile. So in other words, when it says God doesn't upbraid us for asking, it means God's not going to reprimand you for asking for something good. God isn't going to insult you. He's not going to denounce you. God's not going to revile you for seeking that which will benefit the kingdom of heaven. I believe it delights the Lord for his people to ask for good gifts. But as we're fixing to see here in verse 6 in just a moment, there's some requirements and conditions put upon our asking methods. I wonder what does James really mean when he says that God gives to all men liberally? We know James is speaking about wisdom when he says that. So would it matter to him whether we're saved or lost? Would God answer the sinner's prayer in such as this? Will God give wisdom to sinner and saint alike? Something to think on, and just keep that in the back of your mind as we progress through the next few verses. James 1 and 6, But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. The one being spoken of here, but let him ask in faith, is the one that was lacking in wisdom. It's his responsibility to see his need of wisdom. He is to then ask God for wisdom. There's yet a requirement that comes with this, for he must ask in faith. We've now come full circle here because James has told us that it's the trying of our faith that brings us patience. When James says that this man must ask, he uses the Greek word aetio. Okay, aetio means to ask, to beg, to desire, or to crave something. It speaks of a strong desire for something. Let me tell you that if you don't have a strong desire for what you ask for from God, 
then you're probably not asking in faith. If you're not asking for it in faith from God, you'll not receive the thing that you're asking for. To ask in faith reminds me of what Jesus said in Mark 11 and 24. Let me read you this. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Jesus says, if, if you desire something, pray for it. That's good advice already. If you desire something, start praying for it. And not only just pray for it, believe that you're going to receive it. That's one of the main points right here. You desire it. You started praying for it. Now you believe that you're going to receive it. And then he says, you will have it. Paul also spoke of something similar in 1 Timothy 2 and 8, when he encouraged us to pray everywhere. Listen to what he says. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So Paul gives us a little idea of how to pray. We're to pray and where? Everywhere. So we're to pray everywhere, and we're to do so without wrath, and we're to do so without doubting. It's imperative for us to desire what we're praying for. It's also just as imperative that we keep ourselves from doubting. If you doubt that you're going to get what you're praying for, you probably won't get what you're praying for. Getting mad, getting angry, all of these things hinders our prayers from being answered. As a matter of fact, they work similar to what doubt does, according to what Paul teaches. So we understand that there are some ways that we must go about our prayers and how we pray and how we petition God. And when we do these things, we must have faith and believe. Now we see the word waver. The word waver is the Greek diakrino. Diakrino most of the time simply means to doubt or to be uncertain of something. It can also mean to judge something or evaluate something carefully. What does that mean? I mean, don't that change the meaning of this? Doesn't that just kind of alter what we thought that it meant? Not really. That means that we're not to come to God in prayer doubting, nor are we to come to God in prayer feeling uncertain of the outcome. But it also means that we shouldn't come to God in prayer while we're trying to evaluate the situation carefully, which means we're really just trying to figure out how to fix it ourselves while we're praying about it. James says that when we do this, as the Greek eolka means, eolka means we resemble a wave of the sea that's being tossed and driven by the winds. In other words, we're listless. We're living our lives somewhat out of control. In Isaiah 57 and 20, this is depicted very well. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. The only issue in Isaiah 57 and 20 is that the person is referred to as being wicked there. For an example, remember in Luke 8 and 24, the disciples are on the sea during a windstorm. They came to Jesus for help as the wind was tossing them, and he answered their prayer. Paul warns us in Ephesians 4 and 14 of those who are easily driven by the winds as being an easy target by the enemy and by false teachers. Let me read you that. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. These false prophets are those who bring many winds of doctrine in an effort to deceive people and to toss them around. James said these people resemble a wave of the sea, which is really a reference to rough water. It refers more specifically to a large swell of water being pushed by the wind in a storm. That phrase, driven with the wind and tossed, it comes from the Greek word anomizomai. Anomizomai is translated to be blown here and there. It means to be blown around. It means to be pushed by a fierce wind. Now, let's take a moment and summarize what we have here. We have a man that lacks wisdom, so as to ask for wisdom of God, 
and he's to ask with a great desire. He is to ask for wisdom in faith. He's to do this without any doubt or uncertainty. If he has doubt, he resembles a wave of the sea that is just picked up and tossed with the wind. He has no anchor to hold him if he has no faith. Not only does this type of person lack wisdom, he lacks faith as well. And he will also lack what he needs the most, as the next verse tells us. Let's read verse 7. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Now, James states this as a matter of fact. If you lack faith, don't think you're going to receive the answer to the prayer that you put forth. Now, this really showcases the lack of wisdom that this man really has. To come to God and ask for something while all alone you don't believe that he's going to answer your prayer, you're going to get exactly what you're expecting. Nothing. James seems pretty adamant that you're not going to get what you need from God if you don't desire it. James seems just as adamant that you're not going to get what you need from God if you don't have faith. I believe this is a perfect order presented here by the Lord's brother concerning how we're to go about prayer. Think about it. We must first recognize that we have a need. We must then recognize that only the Lord can meet our need. We must come to the Lord in prayer. We must desire the Lord to receive the thing that we're asking for. We must also believe that the Lord is able to meet the need, but not only that, but that he's also able to answer our prayer by giving us what we have petitioned him for. If we doubt or fail to believe, we've set ourselves up for failure. We will walk away from our prayer without what we need if we give in to doubt and unbelief. James has a name for this type of person, and we see exactly what that is as we go into the next verse, James 1 and 8, which will be our last verse we look at today. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, James is beginning to diagnose the type of man who would come to God and ask of him for something, but then not believe God's going to do it. James calls this man double-minded. I mean, why would you come to God and ask him for something if you already have it made up in your mind he's not going to do it? This comes from the Greek word disikos. Disikos describes a man who is a doubter, a man whose mind is divided. It describes one who struggles between two different mindsets. There's many scriptures that speak of this type of person. First, let me go to the place where James mentions it one other time, James 4 and 8. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. James mentions this word once again, and he tells the double-minded they need to have their hearts purified. And if they've sinned, they need to cleanse their hands and then draw nigh to God. I believe this is connected with 1 Kings 18 and 21, where Elijah asked the people, how long are you going to halt between two opinions? Jesus spoke of this type person in Matthew 6 and 24 when he said that no man can serve two masters. You can't do anything right with a divided mind. You can't handle anything if you have a divided allegiance. James is playing this statement off of his comment back in James 1 and 5 where he spoke of the person who was generous because generosity also translates as to be single-minded. You have one thing in focus. That's what you're trying to do is just one thing. He's playing this against the double-minded man who's not going to receive anything. That tells us that the single-minded, the generous person, the liberal person will receive something from the Lord. The man who can't decide where to stand or what he needs to believe, he can't be generous because he doesn't know what side to support because he's double-minded. People who are double-minded are unstable. James uses the Greek akatastatos, which means not controlled, and it means to be out of control or uncontrolled. 
We also see this word a couple of times in a few other places in the New Testament, both of which are found in Peter's writings. Let me read you a couple of those. Second Peter 2 and 14, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. That's Second Peter 2 and 14. Second Peter 3 and 16 says, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. We realize that a person that's unstable is easily beguiled. A person that's unstable is double-minded. A person that's unstable will rest the scriptures, and they do this to their own destruction. Back in Genesis 49, verses 3 and 4, Jacob called Reuben unstable as water. In the Hebrew, this means to be reckless. Let me read you this passage. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed. Then defiledest thou it. He went up to my couch. This is playing into exactly what James has been speaking about concerning water imagery. To be unstable means to be frothy, which is a description of waters dashing against themselves until the waves begin to become frothy, foaming with bubbles. That's exactly the word that is used here in Genesis 49. It ties in perfectly with who James is describing here when he says they're like the waves that are being tossed and driven with the wind. I believe it's all too easy to forget what type of man is being described as double-minded here. I've heard this man preached as a sinner, as someone you can't trust, and even worse, hang on to your hats. James says this is a man who's praying. (laughs) It's the man who has come to God asking for something in prayer. And specifically, he's here asking for wisdom. But he is also the same man who doubts that he's going to receive what he's asked for. This man is not going to receive anything from the Lord because of his doubt. By doubting and wavering, he is likened unto the waves of the sea that are driven by fierce winds. Because of his doubting, he's depicted as a man with a divided mind. This makes him unstable. He's so double-minded by his lack of faith, he's called unstable in all of his ways. Not just in a couple of ways, but all of his ways. Everything this man does is affected by his double-mindedness. It's affected by his doubt. This kind of man will believe God and then not believe God in things. This kind of man will rest the scriptures, and he can be easily beguiled by deceivers. This man is a reckless man. He's like the froth tossed from the waves. When the wind dies out, the froth ceases to be. When things level out, this man will no longer be before God with his request and his petition. When things goes well, he goes on his way. But when things begin to go badly again, he'll be back at prayer again, but he will be doubting God as always before. Reuben was unstable, and because of it, he lost the blessing of being the firstborn of Jacob. If we're unstable in all of our ways before God, we stand the chance of losing our blessings that God has promised to us and provided to us. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. Where does all of these things stem from? It all started with a lack of wisdom and a lack of faith. Amen. Good teaching, Pastor. I thought about a double-minded man. He believes that God can do it, but will he do it for me? That's right. And that's that's where a lot of folks are. We got a question here today. I'm anxious to see what you're going to do with this. Okay, let's have it. Here it is. Is it possible 
that chronologically Genesis is not the first book in the Bible or that Revelations is not the last book. Okay, number one, let me just begin by saying thank you for the question. Number two, there's a small possibility that Genesis is not the first book of the Bible that was written. But this also begs another question then. If Genesis isn't the first book, which book is? What book do you think should be the first? Which one would predate Genesis? It is the book of beginnings. It describes the beginning of man. I mean, it tells how the world came into creation. So what book would you put before that? I can't think of one. There's a possibility that one of the other books was written first. I mean, there's a slight possibility, but it's highly unlikely. Now, to answer the second part of the question is that Revelation may not be the last book. There's absolutely no doubt that Revelation is the last book added to the canon of Scripture. Revelation wasn't written until sometime in the late 90s AD, making it by far the latest book that was written that's included in our Bibles. So there's really no denying that one. The ones that are in between Genesis and Revelation, a lot of them would be up for grabs, though, because they're probably not anywhere close to being in a chronological sense, other than the fact that First and Second Samuel are in order, First and Second Kings are in order, First and Second Chronicles are in order. Other of the books, they are placed near the time frames they were supposed to be in. But Ruth, it happened during the times of the Judges, okay? It comes right after the book of Judges. So it's pretty well put where it needs to be. We read the first five books Moses wrote. It goes into Joshua, who come in after Moses. Then it goes into after he dies, the Judges begin to rule the land. That's the next book. Ruth comes right after that. Makes perfect sense. What begins to get out of line is shortly thereafter, okay? I'm going to stop this argument mention something else, and then pull both of these thoughts together. Some people argue that Job was written before Genesis, and some argue that it was written during the patriarchal times of Genesis, during the times of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believe that Job probably lived around the time Melchizedek was alive. Now, where they get their proof for this, I don't know, but there's a lot of people that do cling to that belief. This can't really be proved, and it can't be disproved. It's just a theory, and so there's really nothing that gives a strong foundation to believe it. We don't have much to support it, and we don't have much to be able to knock it down. But there is a growing amount of proof that has pointed to Job being written by Ezra, okay? Some people believe that it may have even been written during the time around the prophet Malachi. The reasoning for this is some of the wording is very archaic. Okay, which is why most people believe it was written during the time of the book of Genesis and during the patriarchal periods. All right. But even though Job contains some very archaic words, some of it was very modern, straight from the second temple period around which the time Jesus lived. So if it was that old, how could it have modern language that was thousands of years later? It would be easier to believe that it was a newer book that use some of the old language instead of an old book that used language that hadn't been invented before. (laughs) So I don't want to throw you off too bad by this, but if you've never studied the chronology of the Old Testament, it might surprise you and it might even bother you. Very little of it is in a perfect lineal order once you get past Ruth. Okay. All right. As you look at your Bible, you begin to think that all of those latter books in the Old Testament are the last books that was written. Well, the only one that is definitely the oldest book in the right place is the book of Malachi. 
it was the last book written before the 400 years of silence before Jesus came on the scene. But the oldest books of our Old Testament are Second Chronicles, Nehemiah, Ezra, and Malachi. Those books are not even anywhere near each other. The biggest thing that we need to keep in mind is not whether or not the Bible is in a chronological order or not. The biggest thing we need to cling to is that it is inspired by God and the word was dictated by the Holy Ghost. And we know that every one of these words that we read, every one of the books and epistles that we read were inspired by the Holy Ghost and God breathed. Amen. That was a great answer, Pastor. Friends, remember, if you have a Bible question that you'd like an answer to, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. If you have a comment about this podcast or any of our past podcasts, we would welcome your input. We hope you enjoyed our podcast today, sharing God's Word. But until next time, may God bless you all. Come back and see us on Friday. We've got a special guest coming, Brother Devin Birdsong. We're going to have an interview with him. So I can keep my soul feeling free. I'll gladly bear the reproach, Lord, for the gospel's sake. Where I go, you've already been there, cause I'm walking in Jesus' name. Well, I'm walking in Jesus' name. I'm going where he bid me go. I'm dressing and talking like he wants me to. He's a keeper of my soul. I have learned to lean on Jesus and cast on him my ever concern. I'm looking for a home and glory.